Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your holy, divine, inspired word. We believe that it is your revelation to us. It is you speaking to us. We pray that we would clearly know and understand by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, the truth, God, that you would want us to understand today. We pray that our hearts would be open in good soil. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, a heart and a mind to perceive, God, your truth. Make it plain to us today, God, we pray, that we would leave this place knowing that we have heard from God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our sermon today is The God Who Levels Human Ignorance. The God Who Levels Human Arrogance. Did I say ignorance? It's not ignorance, it's arrogance. Sorry. The God Who Levels Human Arrogance. To be honest, this is much of the same of Daniel chapter 4. God is in the habit and in the business of making sure to humble the proud. You see, God will not share his place with anyone. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon for 43 years. And during that time, God used Daniel, a Hebrew slave, to get King Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He went from being a proud, arrogant king to a king who was humbled by God and who came to the conclusion that the Most High God truly rules over all of the kingdoms of men. Then Nebuchadnezzar dies. And for the next 25 years, the Babylonian Empire is very, very tumultuous. The monarchy suffers. And it goes from one king to another to another. If you remember from Daniel chapter 2, God had given him a vision of a great statue, massive. And that the, the Babylonian Empire was that head of gold, remember? But today we're going to move from that head of gold to the breastplate and the arms of silver, from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo Persian Empire. And this all happens just in a matter of 70 years. will clearly see that the kingdoms of men will come and go, but that the kingdom of God will rule forever. Daniel has told us this already in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Amen? These next 25 years after Nebuchadnezzar dies are important for us to understand the beginning of Daniel chapter 5 and how Belshazzar fits. After his death, Nebuchadnezzar's son takes over. His name was Evil Mordekish. He takes over his father's throne, but then he is suddenly assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neliasgar. And Neliasgar reigns for about four years. And then he is succeeded by his son, 
whose name is Labashi Marduk. Please don't name your son that. He's going to get fun of, made fun of in school. And yet Labashi Marduk reigns for the total of one whole month. And then he is assassinated by a group of conspirators. And this group of conspirators, they nominate a man named Nebonidas. And Nebonidas is worried about keeping the lineage of the monarch. So he marries one of the many wives that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Yet Nebuchadnezzar was passionate about the sun god named Sin. But in Babylon, the primary god was the god, of, was the god named Marduk. And there was the danger of the priestly order raising up against King Nebuchadnezzar because he wanted to overthrow that primary god with the, sin, with, with the moon god Sin. And so the counselors came up with an idea of sending Nebuchadnezzar to an oasis that was 150 kilometers from the capital city of Babylon so that he could continue on with his craziness of wanting to serve the moon god Sin. And then he left his son, Belshazzar, as the de facto king in the capital city of Babylon. We're going to see this later on in the text. That it is Belshazzar who is willing to give the person who is going to interpret the dream what? The third most powerful rank in all the kingdom, right? Why? Because the king, Nebonidas, is in the oasis city of Tetma, while his son, Belshazzar, is reigning as the de facto king, the prince, in the capital city of Babylon. And so only the third seat is up for grabs. That's why when we begin Daniel chapter 5, it seems so abrupt. We don't get any lineage about Belshazzar. We don't know how he ascended to, to the throne. We know very, very little. Because Daniel isn't interested in giving us a history and chronology of the Babylonian kings. Daniel is instead interested in giving us the accounts of how God is at work in the midst of the pagan kings. And so that's why we need to allow history to kind of fill in some of these gaps to help us understand how we got to this point in Daniel chapter 5. Here's what we really need to understand before we get into our text. The Medo-Persian army has surrounded the city of Babylon. They have been on the move, coming towards and conquering all of the people that had belonged to the Babylonian empire. And yet the city of Babylon is protected by a double wall, 65 feet high with towers all around. They believed that the wall was impenetrable. And the arrogance of King Belshazzar, which we will see, is that he chooses to have a feast while the enemy army is just outside the walls waiting to invade the city. 
He truly believes that he is invincible. Yet God will help, will humble him. My dad would always say something to me growing up. He told me that I could avoid making a lot of mistakes in life if I was just willing to learn with the mistakes of others. Now, we can actually save ourselves a lot of pain and suffering if we look to how others live, the decisions they make, and where we see them fail, we can say, well, I'm not going to do it that way. You see, King Belshazzar had this opportunity to learn from his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, yet he chose to ignore the lesson for himself. And let's be honest, we are not much different ourselves. Many times, instead of learning the lessons from others, we choose to take the harder path and go through the same experiences ourselves because we are a stubborn bunch. And we somehow think that we can outsmart those who went before us and that we'll find some other way around it. Yet God is sovereign. He sees all and knows all and nothing will escape him. You see, God will always deal with the pride and arrogance of humanity. At times, he will be patient. He will be long-suffering. He will allow us time to come to our senses to repent and to turn away from our sin and humble ourselves. Like we saw last week with King Nebuchadnezzar, remember? God gives him the vision. Daniel tells him that judgment's coming. And God gives the king a year to repent. That is not the case in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar sins and God brings immediate and fierce judgment upon this king. We'll see that according to God's own sovereignty, he acts as he wishes, when he wishes, with whom he wishes. And we see that King Nebuchadnezzar came to this understanding at the end of his life in chapter 4, verse 37. Look at what it says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the king of heaven. For all his ways are right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. The first thing we see in the first nine verses is the party. I want to suggest that this is a party that you would not want to have been invited to. From all of the gatherings that I've done through my worship, and I don't mean to be crass in anything that I'm going to be teaching today, this was a full-out orgy. Thanks for the wow, Nathan. King Belshazzar decides to throw this massive feast. And who is outside the city walls? The Medo-Persian army. King Darius is waiting to find a way to invade the city. And yet in his arrogance, King Belshazzar chooses to throw a party when his whole kingdom is at risk. This is no small banquet. He invites a thousand lords. It is massive. And it's clear 
that Belshazzar is going out of his way to throw this lavish party. A thousand lords, all of his wives and concubines. And the text tells us in verse 1 that while he is drinking wine, that everybody else is watching him drink wine. Just read that in verse 1. We've already read the text. Follow along. We'll have it up there. You can see. He is literally drinking wine while everyone else is watching him. A thousand men, his wives, his concubines, and all of these thousand men are watching him with his wives as they all get drunk. It would be quite a strange party to go to to watch one man drinking and everybody else watching him drink. And yet this is exactly what's happening. The wine is going around. This is an evil, perverted party full of sensuality. Like I said, this is an orgy with a thousand men watching one man with his wives and concubines. This shows this king's perversion and pride that, resorts in his, that, that resides in his heart. And you can see that his desire is to be the center of attention. He wants everyone's eyes to be looking at him. And then in verse 2, we see something that needs clarification. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. Now we know that this wasn't the case given the historical background that I just gave you in the introduction. But most scholars believe that Nebuchadnezzar married one of King Nebuchadnezzar's wives so that the monarchy would continue throughout that same line. Also in Aramaic, there was no word for grandfather. It was perceived that as you read a document where it was father or your forefathers, that it was understood that you were a descendant of the ones who were mentioned. Make sense? So when it says it was your father, Nebuchadnezzar, it is speaking of the fact that Belshazzar is from the descendancy of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Does that make sense? And so we'll see repeated in the text that Daniel tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. Not directly, it's believed in this sense because of, our, of what I already shared, that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather. The party goes from bad to worse. After tasting the wine, King Nebuchadnezzar turns the party even more evil from what it already is. It is a debauchery filled with sexual immorality, and then it goes down the pits towards blasphemy, and idolatry. This has been King Belshazzar's plan all along. His plan has been to mock the Hebrew God in front of all of his people. So he commands for the gold and silver vessels to be brought from the pagan temple into the party. 
If you'll remember from Daniel chapter 1 in the first verses, when King Nebuchadnezzar besieges Judah, they invade the temple of Jerusalem. And as part of invading the temple of Jerusalem, they take all of the golden vessels out of the temple and they bring it to Sheol, to Shniar, to Shniar, which is where the pagan temple was for the Babylonians. And they stored the artifacts, these gold and silver um, vessels, in the treasury of the pagan gods. Nebuchadnezzar never touches them. He just leaves them there. But Belshazzar has the bright idea of going and getting these vessels, which would have been chalices, cups, that would have been made to be used by the priests in the temple in Jerusalem for God's use, for God's service. They were considered sacred. They weren't just ordinary cups that you have in your shelf. They had a special purpose. Yet Belshazzar has no regard for God whatsoever. The cups, these gold and silver vessels are brought to the party and now they're filled with wine so that everyone can begin drinking. Are you guys tracking with me? He crosses a line. Belshazzar is intentionally mocking and demeaning God in front of all of his audience. These vessels are sacred. They belong to God, and they're for God's use. They're not ordinary. And he doesn't stop there. While they're drinking out of these gold and silver vessels, they begin to worship their pagan gods, their man-made gods that were made statues out of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. I forgot iron. This party has now become a worship service to the pagan gods while using gold and silver vessels from the temple of Jerusalem that belonged to God. And Belshazzar does not care one bit. Now they're worshiping their gods. We have to understand the importance that this isn't just a fun night out, a party. Belshazzar is intentionally using this opportunity to demean God in front of everyone. He's trying to show that his pagan gods made out of all of these different materials, gold, silver, iron, bronze, wood, and stone, are greater than the God of Judah. This is complete human defiance towards God. And then in verse 5, the party goes from bad to worse. Everyone's drinking Everyone's worshiping the pagan gods. And then across the room, King Belshazzar sees fingers of a human hand. And it's actually close to or across from the lampstand. The idea that we get is that this is in the place in the room that would have been best lit. So Belshazzar could very clearly see from the other side of the room where the lampstand is across from it 
that there was a, a thing that there were fingers of a man, human hand, writing on the plaster of his wall. How many of you guys have ever seen, like on National Geographic, the beautiful plaster walls of the Egyptian Empire, like in their tombs, the paintings? Anyone? They're, they're grand and extravagant. Now imagine on one of those walls of, in the royal palace with beautiful paintings, seeing a hand, fingers, itch, inching into the plaster, writing on the wall. It's no surprise that the text clearly tells us in verse 6 that the king's color changed. You know what that means? He went from having rosy cheeks from all the wine he was drinking to looking white like a ghost. Are you guys with me? He is pale. Not a bit of color is left in him. And his thoughts alarmed him, verse 6 says. He doesn't know what to think of what he's seeing because that's not normal. There's no body to those hands. It's just the fingers. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 6 continues and says what? That his limbs gave way. The idea here in the original is that he, his, his intestines got into knots. Literally, you know what this means? And again, I'm not trying to be crass in any way. He wet himself from both ends. Yeah, I just saw your face there, Anna. Anna was just like, literally, he has soiled himself. And not only his knees begin to buckle. The, the, the idea here is that he is standing looking at the wall. He goes, what is a ghost? His thoughts don't understand what's happening. He soils himself and his knees weaken so much that he kind of falls back into his chair. This definitely gets Belshazzar's attention. This king is forced to sober up really quickly. He's been out of touch with reality, partying, getting drunk, mocking God, worshiping his false gods, and then suddenly he's brought back into the seriousness of reality by God. This is a wake-up call for King Belshazzar. This is a divine moment and opportunity that God is giving him. How about you? Have you ever sensed in your life where God was trying to get your attention? Where through circumstances, or maybe actually while you were reading his word, or through maybe a conversation that you were having with someone, God was trying to press a truth of his word upon you that you could no longer ignore or take lightly. There are moments in our lives where God will go out of his way to get our attention. Just like he did here with King Belshazzar. The question is how have we and how will we respond to those moments in our lives? You see, these are divine opportunities that God uses to humble us, to cause us to turn back to him, to acknowledge our sin and to repent, to stop running from God and to run towards God. And so what does King Belshazzar do in verse 7? He's in human desperation. 
And he does what everybody has always done. If Nathan, you're looking for my charger, please forgive me, but I forgot it at home. Where does King Belshazzar turn? He turns to his own human religion. He turns to who? His enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. This story has repeated itself, no? This is the third time where these kings are doing the same thing over and over and over, and their religion always comes up short. It's insufficient. It never works. You would think that they would have learned the lesson already, right? Why do we as humans fall in the same pit again and again and again, and we see other people falling in those pits, and we make the same mistake again and again and again? Right? What's, what do people say that the definition of insanity is? Trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, good luck. This guy's insane, just like his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he calls all of his wise men into the kingdom. The text says that he yells. He actually screams in a loud voice. And they're all brought in. And what does he do? He does what every king does. That's in human desperation. And he turns to divine foolishness. He makes promises. To the person who is able to interpret the dream, I'm going to give them a purple robe. Purple robe is a sign of what? Royalty. Right? I'm going to put a chain of gold around his neck. There would have been no greater honor for a man at that time than to wear a chain of gold around his neck placed on him by the king himself. And I will make him the third most powerful man to rule over all of the kingdom. And all the wise men are there and they're all like, oh, oh, I can't wait, I can't wait. And what are they able to interpret and make known? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Religion comes up short again. Oh. Oh. Then in verse 8, the wise men come in. They can't interpret anything. And then look at verse 9 again. Belshazzar goes from bad to worse. He brings his wise men. And for a moment, he's gathering himself. He, he's gained some composure, right? And what does the text say again in verse 9? Then the king was greatly alarmed again. What am I going to do now? I've tried everything I know. What happens to his color? I don't know how you can get whiter than a ghost that is already white, but he's even whiter than he was before. That's the idea. This is intensifying. He's even worse than he was before. Now he's in complete panic. He has no clue what to do. He is in shock. The idea here is he's both emotionally and physically paralyzed with fear. And now look at what happens at the end of verse 9. All of the guests notice. They become perplexed. What's going on with the king? It's visibly noticeable to the thousand lords, his wives and concubines, that the king is not well. And commotion starts to erupt in the banquet hall. Quite a party.
I would suggest that many times this is what society looks like around us and how they try to deal with their own sin. You see, we are willing to try every spiritual and physical remedy to try to solve our sin problem instead of turning to God. Instead of running to God, people run to their religion, to their gurus, their spiritual leaders, their magic rocks, their Torah readings, their magic mushrooms, so that they can try and center themselves with the universe and so that they can become one with divine energies. They take silent retreats to find themselves. I'm not making this stuff up. People pay a lot of money for these kinds of things today to try to find inner peace. Others turn to their natural paths. Psychologists, psychiatrists, life coaches, wellness experts, food scientists to deal with their problems. We'll cleanse our bodies of all toxins so that we can get rid of all of our negative energies. We'll drink any kind of tea, spray almost any scent into the air if it's going to make us feel better. We'll do almost anything before turning to God. So it's easy at times for us to find ourselves turning in all the wrong directions looking for answers instead of running and turning to God and to his word for direction. You see, we have short memories and we quickly try to use worldly solutions to deal with spiritual problems. We look for quick fixes instead of acknowledging our deep need for God. God is staring us right in the face and yet we will turn everywhere else, just like King Belshazzar. Yet we need to turn to God first and to his word. Because there's only one way to deal with our sin problem. And that is by humbling ourselves and looking unto Jesus, the one who God the Father sent to die on the cross for our sin so that we could be forgiven and restored back into relationship with him. Can I get an amen? And then, and after turning to God first, listen clearly. If you have to go to the doctor, go to the doctor. And if you have to see a counselor, See a counselor. And if you need to change your diet, change your diet. But my hope and prayer is that instead of us trying every human solution possible to try to deal with our problems, first, we should turn to God and allow him to give us discernment through his word and through the leading of his Holy Spirit to even to know which of those human things that we should go to to try to find help. That God would be our first response, not our last. So the second point is that God gives King Belshazzar an opportunity, verses 10 to 16. And in verse 10, the queen isn't at the party, but she hears all of the commotion and she comes in. She hears the crying of Belshazzar and the lords making all that ruckus that she comes in to try to figure out what's going on. And just to clarify, if you remember, the king's wives and the king's concubines are at the party, right? So this is very likely the queen mother. This is very likely Belshazzar's mother. She would have had some respect and honor in the kingdom. 
But if you notice, when she comes before the king, she does have some sense of respect for him. She does say to him, O king, live forever. The irony of that statement is that the king will actually die in the next few hours. She tries to calm her son down for him to gather his composure. And the queen mother is old enough where she remembers. And, and, and look at what it says in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods. Son, there is a man in your kingdom. There is someone in your kingdom who has light and understanding, wisdom from the gods, an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. This man, Daniel, has quite a resume. But somehow he has been lost into oblivion. And now he's in obscurity. We don't know where Daniel has been. It's very likely with the change of a king and with the passing of Nebuchadnezzar that these other kings saw no value in having Daniel by their side. It's also very likely that Daniel is in retirement. Because by this time, do you know how old Daniel would have been? 80 years old. 80 years old. Remember, Daniel and his three friends, they went to Babylon when they were simple adolescents. And now he's in his old age. And nobody cares what old people think. Yet the queen mother has not forgotten Daniel. His character and his reputation has stuck with her. She remembers the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And how Daniel faithfully served Nebuchadnezzar and how King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of the magicians, enchanters, and Chaldeans, and astrologers. girls. It's interesting to note, I don't know if you guys noticed in the text, verse 11, that, sorry, I don't want to mis misquote here, in verse, in verse 12, that she refers to Daniel by his Hebrew name. And then she says, oh yeah, and by the way, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar named him Belteshazzar. But it's clear that Daniel should be called. Not Belteshazzar, but that Daniel should be called. When we have no human options left, we're willing to turn to God. You see, King Belshazzar has exhausted all of his other options. And so if his mom says that there could be a solution, I'm going to listen to mommy. And so what does King Belshazzar do? He summons Daniel. But listen to how smug and condescending Belshazzar sounds. Then Daniel was brought before the king in verse 13. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the 
the king my father brought from Judah? Wait, you? A slave? An old man? I'm going to listen to you? So I have, I have the smartest men in all of the world. I have all of the experts. And I'm going to listen to you? But I heard. Do you see how Belshazzar doesn't even say that it was his mom that told him? I heard. Somebody told me. A little birdie said that you're really smart. That you know a lot. And that you can interpret things and that you know how to explain riddles. It's obvious to Belshazzar that he has no regard for the Hebrew God and that he has no regard from Daniel himself. You see, many times people only realize that they need God when there's nowhere else for them to turn. People are unwilling to humble themselves and to give up control of their lives and situations. And so they'll try at all costs to avoid turning to God. Because when you turn to God, you have to be willing to humble yourself. And yet this king is not, not willing to do this. And yet, he makes the offer to Daniel. Just like he did to all the other wise men, right? Daniel, if you're willing and if you're able to interpret this vision that I saw, I'm going to give you a purple robe. I'm going to give you a chain of gold around your neck. And I'll make you the third most powerful man in all of the kingdom. Can a slave really help me? That's what Belshazzar is thinking. Our final point, judgment. Verses 17 to 31. And you're glad that this is the last point, even though it's the longest. I love Daniel's response. He has very little pleasantries in time for this king. <laughs> if you see his response. Daniel basically says to King Belshazzar, listen, <laughs> you can't buy me. I'm not for sale. Keep your stuff. Give it to somebody else. I don't need it. <laughs> He's not even like Belshazzar's mother. Oh, king, live forever. Guess why? Because Daniel knew what was coming. He couldn't say that in truthfulness. But he has no pleasantries for the king whatsoever. And he's not going to allow himself to be bought with what, king with what King Belshazzar could give him. Because Daniel is motivated to speak the word of God, the truth, instead of wanting to please this king. And he will not allow his interpretation of what he's going to tell the king to be influenced by what the king can give him in return. Are you guys with me? Listen, now, let me tell you this openly and frankly. And please hear my heart with this. There are pastors today in ministry who will take a pastoral position in a church based on how much they will make instead of for the opportunity to faithfully preach the word of God. 
There are preachers who will only speak what people like to hear because they know it will put them in good standing with those people and they will have favor with those people. Yet as preachers of the word of God, our motivation can never be to speak what people want to hear, but to instead faithfully preach all of the word of God. You see, we can never bend our message to make people feel good. We can be tempted to preach in a way that gives into people's desires instead of preaching the faithful doctrine of the word of God. My prayer is that God would deliver everyone that comes up here from that temptation. Paul exhorts Timothy about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Look at what it says. And I say this as an exhortation towards myself, Roger, Monica, Christina, Christian, and the, all the other pastors that we will produce in this church. When I mean we, I mean God will produce, not us. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That is our calling as preachers of the Word of God. You are never to pander or to give in to the itching ears of what people like to hear. And Daniel was not willing to compromise. Instead, Daniel gives King Belshazzar a history lesson about his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. We see this starting in verse 18 and 19. Daniel outlines all that God had done for King Nebuchadnezzar. In God's sovereignty, God had given him kingship, greatness, glory, majesty, all the peoples, languages of the world, all the nations. Everyone feared him. He could do to anyone whatever he wanted. He was the most powerful man on the earth, right? To whom he, he commanded life would live. To who he commanded death would be dead. He had all that power. And yet, with all that power, and we saw this last week in Daniel chapter 4. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He let it all go to his, he thought that he was the one who had accomplished it all. He lifted himself up. And when Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up with pride, thinking that he had accomplished all of that for himself, God removed him from his throne. And God didn't just remove him from his throne. God removed him from mankind and made him go live with the animals. And not just live with the animals, but to think like an animal and, 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 and live like an animal and eat like an animal. And we get a little bit more clarity here. He was living with the wild donkeys. Not a place I'd want to be. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar's sinful pride by humbling him. And why did God do this? Verse 21. 
One of our themes throughout this whole book. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over them, sets over it whom he wills. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar from his sinful pride to teach him that God is the one that's in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. And yet this is a lesson that has not been learned by Belshazzar. In verse 22, the history lesson is over. Daniel shows the parallel between Belshazzar and his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar has not, has also not humbled his heart. And look at 21. He has not humbled his heart while knowing the history. You knew what God did to your grandfather. You learned. You were taught. And now you intentionally are doing even worse than your grandfather did. You have lifted yourself up, Belshazzar. You are even more arrogant than your grandfather. And we see this because if you look at these verses, you'll see that the word you is used 14 times speaking directly to Belshazzar. You, 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 you. To grab his attention. He hasn't just made the mistake of his grandfather. He's made it even worse. And in verses 23 and 24, instead of Belshazzar humbling himself, because he's lifted himself up against the God of heaven, what does he do? He takes the vessels from the house of God. He brings them in to his banquet hall and he fills them with wine so that everybody can drink. Turns the party into a worship service. And he begins worshiping his man-made gods out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood. Then look at verse 23. This is significant. Look at what Daniel tells Belshazzar. Your gods, your gods don't even see. Your gods don't even hear. Your gods have no knowledge whatsoever. But the God in whose hands is your breath, in whose are all of your ways you have not honored. King, the one who gives you breath to breathe with every inhale and exhale, you have chosen to ignore and more than ignore to demean and to mock, and yet you go playing around with your little statues? God is exposing this king's sin. And we see in this last section of judgment from verses 17 to 31 that God says five different times. God is referred to as acting five different times in this text. God is the one who is in control, not Belshazzar. And this is the point of this whole chapter. You see, you can't go in, listen carefully, my brothers and sisters and guests. You can't go around taking what belongs to God and treating it like ordinary objects. And then doing what you think as if you were more powerful than God and mock him and then expect him to sit back and not do anything. Listen, this is what our society has done. Our society has taken what is sacred. Marriage. One man and one woman. And they have corrupted it. They have taken what is sacred, which is holy, which what God has created. And they are making a living mockery of it in our society right now. 
God will not stand for it, brothers and sisters. He will bring judgment. We cannot take a God and his truth and do with it whatever we want and pretend like there won't be consequences to our decisions. He will act and he will respond. And this is what he's powerfully telling King Belshazzar. You see, you and I need to be careful too that we never find ourselves in a place where we lift up our hearts like King Nebuchadnezzar did and like King Belshazzar did, where we try to place ourselves that rightfully belongs to God. You know who's the boss of your life? He is. And we have the opportunity to humble ourselves and to allow himself to be the one who leads us and guides us through the truth of his word. Amen? And not leaning on our own understanding. And then in verse 24, judgment is pronounced. The hand is no longer writing on the wall. Daniel is looking at the plaster and what was written. And there are four words. Four words. Mene, mene, tekel, parzin. I have a little slide here, I think, that should be able to help us. These words represent three different weights that were used to value money. And so this would read in English today, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Do I have the third one on there? There we go. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And then we'll see the interpretation next in verses 26 to 28 that Daniel gives King Belshazzar. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It is going to end. Verse 27. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting or lacking. 28. Perez, which is the same as Parzin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Who's outside the wall while the party's going on? The Medo-Persians with King Darius waiting to invade. Belshazzar has been brought to an end by God. He has been found locking for not acknowledging the Most High God who rules over him. And so God will strip him of his kingdom and give it to the Medo-Persians. When Daniel confronts King Nebuchadnezzar with his sin, there's no repentance, there's no desire to acknowledge God who has written on the wall and pronounced judgment upon his life. Proverbs 29, verse 1, is very fitting here. It says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. This is true of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just say this. Just because we have the opportunity to share the truth of the word of God with people, it doesn't mean that they will accept it. I can preach until I'm blue in the face, having no air in my lungs anymore. But if it is not the sovereign God who convicts people of their sin, giving them the opportunity to repent, for them to be able to do so willingly, and if they choose to stay in their pride, judgment will eventually come upon them. 
Yet that doesn't nullify us of our responsibility of teaching the truth with those people around us, of sharing Jesus Christ so that they can have the opportunity to know the living God. Amen? Are you with me? But we are not the ones who do the convincing or convicting. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And what does King Belshazzar do instead of humbling himself? He stands in his pride and arrogance before God. And what does he do instead? Well, he does what he said he would do. Daniel gives the interpretation of the vision of the writing on the plaster. And so what does he do to Daniel? Get that purple robe. Put that chain of gold around his neck and make him the third most powerful man in all of the kingdom. And we, by every indication of the text, it doesn't seem like anywhere that Daniel refuses. Remember what Daniel said? I don't need this stuff. But he takes the stuff. And we don't know if he takes it because it's forced upon him. I think he takes the stuff because he knows, listen, <laughs> I'm going to have this position for less than like two hours. That's the point of making a big deal and arguing for two hours if he's going to die. I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but that's literally what happens. Also, now let's take lightly the fact that he does become the third most powerful man in all of the kingdom. And then King Darius, we'll see at the beginning of chapter 5, continues to allow Daniel to be in a position of power, actually even wanting him to get him even into more power, which will be the result of what takes Daniel into the lion's den. Wonderful children, welcome, welcome. Come and join us, please, as we end up here. And then judgment is delivered. Won't you guys stand with me? In verse 30. Let's read verse 30. And then judgment comes immediately and suddenly. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. History tells us. The belief is that the Medo-Persians found a way to invade the city. Remember that massive wall, 65 feet high and 40 feet wide, that was large enough for a chariot with four horses to ride on top of, which they thought was impenetrable? Only a crazy man would do a huge feast for himself on a day when he knows the enemy army is outside waiting to invade. But guess what? The Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon. So guess what the Medo-Persians did? They built a marsh to divert the water that was going into the city and the water levels lowered. And as the, waddles, the, water, the water levels lowered, the enemy army was able to enter the city. And guess what? There wasn't even a fight. The ruling kingdom of the known world at that time in one day went from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians all because of one king's arrogance and pride. We find out that King Darius comes, invades, and that he begins ruling at the age of 62. Human pride is always met with divine judgment, sooner or later. In this case, it was immediately. Let me just say this in closing, for us to pray and then worship. Please, don't leave. Before the end of our service, our children have a video to want to show you. Guys, fathers, want to be fathers, soon to be fathers. So please stay. God uses the circumstances of our lives to get our attention. 
and to remind us that he is the one who is ultimately in control. We can take advantage of these opportunities that God gives us by humbling ourselves, remembering that our pride will only make matters worse. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar, we know better. Just like King Belshazzar did, he knew what his grandfather had gone through, yet he chose not to learn the lesson. We have the opportunity, instead of to remain in our sinful pride, to humble ourselves and to turn to God. And I pray that more of us would be like Daniel. Listen closely. If you remember nothing else, I encourage you to remember, remember this one sentence. It is better to be a slave under the sovereign hand of God's grace than to be a proud king who thinks that he's in control to be humbled by God. It is much better to be a slave under the sovereign hand of God than to be a proud king who thinks he's in control and who God will humble. Let us be more like Daniel, who was in obscurity and was nowhere to be found, to be brought before the king and honored by God because he was the man in whom the spirit of God's, the gods were. And he's exactly what the king needed. I pray that God would rid us of all pride and arrogance and that we would be the kind of people in church that would humbly submit ourselves to our God, knowing that we are under his sovereign hand in control, that we would never defy him with those things which are sacred by trying to make them mundane and ordinary, but that we would honor God and what he says because what he says is Holy, mighty God, we pray that as we worship you this morning, God, that you would be honored, lifted up, magnified, praised, because you are the God who rules over the kingdom of men. And you will do according to your will whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want. And we pray, God, that that would not give us a sense of fear, but that it would give us a sense of joy and hope to know that our lives are in the hand of God who commands our every breath. That we do not need to turn to religion, to the things of this world that are human made. But that we can instead turn to you, knowing that you have all that we need and that you will lead us and guide us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's worship God together, church.